and g'day. Time for the Fuzzy Logic Science show here on 2XX. Now today we're talking about renewable energy, community energy, wind energy, solar, what happens when it goes well and what happens when it goes wrong. And I'm very pleased to have in the studio today Dr. Rebecca Colvin and Lawrence McIntosh. Morning, Lawrence. Morning, Rod. And Marcus. Lawrence, you are Senior Research Consultant at the Institute of Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology in Sydney. You have consulting roles in the electricity distribution and integrating solar into the grid. You're a part at PV Lab. I presume it means testing solar panels. That's right. Uh, and uh, you are the principal executive at, officer at SolarShare, the community solar energy project here in Canberra. That's right. There's a fair bit on my plate. <laughs> that's, quite a, that's quite a list. Now, uh, Rebecca, Climate Change Institute at the ANU, and you're the author of a, uh, an article, How Wind Became a Four-Letter Word, Lessons for Community Engagement from a wind energy conflict in King Island and uh, you also you study the social influences on decision making and the links between climate change research and end users. Now let's start with you Rebecca. Now tell me what was the story on King Island? What was the start to the story of King Island? We have in our mind the idyllic little rural landscape, the beautiful island where the thickened cheese comes from, the cows grazing over beautiful green grass and they had an energy problem. What was that? Well, uh, the way you described King Island is very accurate. It's a beautiful place. But back in 2012, there was a proposal for a large-scale wind energy development. And this came uh, in the context of some challenges in the community, mainly focused around the closure of the local abattoir. And so this development would have been 600 megawatts for export to Victoria, uh, would have had about 200 turbines of about 150 metres tall each. And the way you described King Island is important because it is idyllic. I loved being there and I look forward to going back. Uh, these turbines would have had quite a significant impact on the landscape. Keeping in mind though that King Island also, in addition to this proposal, has a fairly uh, innovative energy system at the moment. They've got a hybrid uh, energy setup with Hydro Tasmania, which includes uh, wind and all sorts of things. So they've got five turbines there that everyone's happy with. Now, one of the reasons that it's so interesting in King Island was that the company that proposed the development took a fairly innovative approach to community engagement. So they didn't just say, this is what we want to develop, here's our development application and you've got 30 days to make um, a submission into the uh, assessment process. Instead they engaged with the community from a very early stage um, before they had hard and fast details of what the proposal would include. They set up a community consultative committee, they had a vote on whether the proposal should go ahead to the feasibility stage, but yet despite doing these things there were still some major problems. Oh, 
can I just wind you back a little bit and you mentioned the closure of the abattoir so mm. there was a local economic motivation was there an energy motivation where were they getting their energy from prior to this project so for King Island their energy was um, primarily from those five wind turbines but also uh, depending on diesel generation so there were some challenges there and interestingly so because King Island's um, part of Tasmania it's in the Bass Strait Legally, islands in the Bass Strait can pay more for energy than other parts of Tasmania. So there's a whole lot of cost of living pressures. But the proposal itself, so this very large scale proposal, would have all been for export. Uh, I don't quite understand the technical dimension of it, but for some reason the energy couldn't be put into the local grid from this proposal. So, okay, is they're going to put these big turbines on their properties and no energy going to King Island at all, not to power their own their own properties. No, that's right. Wow. Okay. Taz Hydro. Tell me a little bit about Taz Hydro. So it's a government-owned corporation. Uh, they used to be known as the Hydroelectric Commission, I think, so they run a lot of the dams in Tasmania. Uh, and they were proposing this development to the community, so as a private operator of um, the wind turbine project. Do you, do you think the historical connection to hydropower in Tasmania, is that a bit of baggage for them? I don't know that I can answer that. I'm sure there's people who could. Uh, they've certainly rebranded. Uh, Was it something then. you picked up in your expression of the island? No, I have to say it didn't come up. Oh, okay. Mm. Now, Laurie, you are the principal executive officer for a community energy project here in Canberra and an outfit called Solar Share. That's right. Solar Share is something that's um, been very close to the hearts of a number of people in our community for, for a while. And it's um, a project to build uh, a one megawatt solar power plant um, in the ACT and have that shared um, by members of the ACT community. We've got about five to 600 um, local residents here who will own part of that solar farm. The um, important thing for us has been here to create a real connection for people, not just to the choices they're making about energy, um, but to other people in their local community, as well as um, connection to where they're investing their money. What's, what's the origin? How did it start up? I think it... Um, I think it clustered from a, an email a friend of mine sent, actually, uh, where he... Um, his name's Ben. I don't think he'll mind me mentioning his name <laughs> on the radio. Uh, ben, and, ben and a few of us have seen developments in community energy um, happen overseas through news articles and things. We've been aware of a, a wind um, community energy development in, in Dalesford, Victoria. And we began to realise that um, we had the ability to do this in Canberra. And so we set out to, to do that and to make it a reality. So one, one megawatt station? That's right. So one megawatt would power, I don't know, between 250 and 300 homes worth of electricity use. So where, where does that sit in the scale of solar energy or, or energy plants in general? You'd call it a small utility scale plant. Uh, people might be familiar with the, um, the plant on the, on the road driving towards um, Cooma, um, so in, in the Royale area. It will be about a twentieth of the size of that. Um, nonetheless, we'll still be um, in, a, in a paddock. It's actually going to be located in the Madura Valley on some land owned by the, the wine 
winemaker the vineyard there uh, and it's, yeah, it's a bit bigger than would fit on probably almost any roof in the ACT. So it, it started with an email and things often start with email or scratching on the back of a coaster at a pub with, over a glass of beer. How did you get to the next step? How did you get people involved? It was a long process of, of essentially what to do is, is um, solving chicken and egg type problems. We, we were thinking, oh, well, we clearly need to um, have some kind of uh, legal structure and we weren't particularly legally experienced at the time and we needed maybe some grant money to get that and we had to figure out who's going to actually give us any grant money if we don't even know what legal structure we're going to have even <laughs> though we need to spend the money on some legal advice. Um, but, but slowly and surely we began to, to piece together different bits of the business plan, uh, establish a board of directors and a eventually incorporate um, what is solar share and um, we've actually got now our first 20 investors came on board last year which was fabulous. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of strands that you had to, to bring together. Now have you, what do you notice about the story that uh, Rebecca has told us so far? It's an interesting story, and it, uh, I, I haven't had a huge degree of connection with the King Island story, um, but I'm very familiar, of course, with our own story and community engagement, and it, yeah, things that Rebecca said are, are not unfamiliar at all. Um, we had gone out early in our, in our lives and um, identified a site, um, and we'd started doing some community consultation around that site. Uh, the original one was, was down on the south side of Canberra, and... Um, before long, we had some feedback that, yeah, maybe this wasn't the best site due to some um, red gum, yellow box, um, yellow box red gum uh, woodland there. It was, it was degraded, but it was still about 50 trees or so on the site with pitched. And we found ourselves in the awkward position of um, saying, look, this would be a really great environmental project to build a solar farm, but at the same time there being some, some information that was, oh, hey, well, is this the best site? It's got some connectivity um, value here between uh, what was Isaac's Ridge Reserve and, and Calumbrae, um on the coast of the Monaro. So it, it made us really sort of have a bit of a look at ourselves and think, well, what's, what's really important for us here? And it became actually a pretty easy decision to, to decide to know that we need to think, think about this seriously and, and make sure that the environmental benefits we're having as a solar farm on, on one hand aren't sort of tarnished by um, by in, impacting the environmental situation in another way. So we went out to look for a new site and and sort of started a lot broader and, and actually, like you were saying, we, we, we spoke to some of the communities very early on. We said, well, we're looking at a few sites in this area. We don't even necessarily know which ones yet. Um, what would you want us to do if we're thinking about focusing on your area? And we started that conversation quite early. And that's how we eventually were welcomed up into the Mandura Valley. And uh, we're, hang on a second. We might get you to share a microphone because I think that one's not working. Do you want to share uh, Lawrence's? Laurie, I was just wondering if you have any plans for a restaurant. We do not. We are a, uh, a solar power, uh, a community-owned solar power organisation. Uh, we haven't really got expertise or interest in, in the food business. Okay. So you're not into the theme park uh, business just yet. Okay, Rebecca, now, so we've got this beautiful King Island locality, and what's the population of King Island? A bit under one and a half thousand people. Oh, so it's quite quite small. It is. And how would you categorise the community? What sort of people live on King Island? I was actually hoping you'd ask this because something that I really love about King Island is that the community, it's 
it's special. So you can drive to the airport in King Island where you're going to fly to Melbourne. You could be going for a long time. You can park right up next to the airport. But typically people leave the keys in the ignition while they're off island because if their car becomes a nuisance for someone else, they can just move it out of the way. Like you don't do this in many places in wow. Australia or the world, I suspect. Oh, just quickly, what sort of area is it? So, say equated to suburbs of Canberra, would it be as big as Canberra or bigger, or roughly? Bigger. So it's kind of oblong shaped. It's just under 70 kilometres north to south, and a bit under um, 30 kilometres east to west. Okay, so vaguely comparable to the total size of Greater Canberra. I'll agree with you because I don't know how R- big roughly. that is. <laughs> in, in that order, give or, give or take. Let's yeah. Not, yeah, okay. So anyway, more about the, the what sort of people on King Island. So there's a mix of people. There's people that have had generations of their family there. There are people that have moved there more uh, more recently that have been attracted by the landscape and the lifestyle. Um, people tend to be quite uh, resourceful. So when you live in King Island, resources come in once a week on a ship. Um, You know, you feel the border of the island um, quite quite prominently. And so if you need to build a new veggie patch, uh, I was talking to some people at one point who were in the process of building a mezzanine in a shed. Like they make the most of the resources that they have. They're very resourceful people and very kind. And so if the supermarket runs out of boxes of cereal, then next week the new shipment will arrive. How many supermarkets would there be? There's two. Two? Yep. And how many coffee shops? Two? <laughs> oh, there's a few more than two. Pe- people in King Island take their coffee very seriously. Okay. Yeah. Now, the the people who came in, the people who weren't born on King Island, people who haven't lived there, the recent arrivals, there's a term for them, isn't there? There is, yes. What is so, it? So um, sometimes, and this is often playfully used or has been, people are referred to as the blow-ins. So they've recently blown into King Island. Um, this, so tr- typically this has been used in a friendly way. So I say, oh, Laurie, you're a blow-in. I'm a real King Islander, but we all get along anyway. Um, but there has been that distinction, that that playful recognition. So, so the original people, the original inhabitants, dare I say. <laughs> yeah, okay. And farms, so uh, cows mm-hmm. and sheep mostly? Uh, primarily cattle uh, yeah. for beef and cheese. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Now, all right, so Taz Hydro, or is it Taz Wind? So the company is Hydro Tasmania, and the project was Taz Wind. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you were saying before that they had a proposal. They were they were one of the, they took an innovative approach. You said, mm-hmm. uh, tell us a bit more about that. What happened? Okay, so right at the beginning, I mentioned the abattoir closed. This put people in a state of vulnerability. Immediately, when the abattoir closed, 90 jobs were lost. So in that small population, that's quite significant. At the time, um, reportedly, there had been private discussions between Hydro Tasmania and the King Island Council saying, we're planning on doing this um, engagement project around our wind energy proposal and we we just want to have some early discussions with the council. I'm not entirely sure what happened but at some point a rumour made it out into the community that there was a two billion dollar project on the horizon and so two billion two billion dollars yes 
Oh, okay. <laughs> and so this was in the context of the local abattoir closing. Uh, over the longer term, there were concerns about the economic viability of the island as well. So the, the abattoir closure was a real big challenge for people in King Island. And so this, um, this rumour, you can understand how that might put some people at ease, thinking we don't need to despair over the closure of our abattoir because there's something else coming up. But in fact, it led to a lot of um, speculation about what the project would be. And so there were rumours that this $2 billion project would be an ASIO spy facility or a detention centre or sand mining or the reopening of a tungsten sheolite mine that had closed down a couple of decades ago in the island. Some people did think it could be wind energy development. But this rumouring meant that even before the proposal had been announced, there were people who were anxious about whether it was going to be the proposal or the project that they wanted it to be, how significant the change would be and how much it would affect the island and their way of life. Mm. Do you have a sense, of, there's probably not a single answer to this question, but what, if you, could you characterise the values of the people on the island? Like, do they see themselves... And there isn't obviously a single answer, but as sea changes, people who want the livestock or people who want to preserve the rural landscape or maybe people who want to build the economics of the place and turn it into a thriving tourist centre. Is there a viable way of answering that question? <laughs> well, I think the only answer I can give is that you've described different parts of the King Island community and all of all of those different um, values types that you've. you've Did you put see a, a strong dichotomy or a strong divergence in those attitudes? Uh, Potentially, there was some tension between different views about what the island is for. So there are people who view the island as having a long industrialised history. They see the land clearing that happened for the uh, dairy industry and then the tungsten mine that operated for a while in King Island as well uh, as showing that this is a working island. This is an island based on industrious people who live in this modified landscape. Another view is that King Island is a sanctuary from the modern world. So the thing I mentioned about leaving your keys in the ignition, um, you very rarely see a locked vehicle. A sense of trust. Yeah. And safety. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's a special place and it is. It's, it's beautiful. It has a Ramsar-listed wetlands. It has incredible coastlines where you can feel like you're the only person on the planet at some times. So there is some differences there in terms of what people think the island is for. So is the island somewhere that you should be continuing that history of industrialization or is it somewhere that you should be preserving that sense of a sanctuary? Yes, I can, I can see a strong contention at any rural centre. So, you know, at the moment in Canberra, they're talking about moving public servants out to Armadale. Mm. I'm wondering whether the people of Armadale really want a big influx of people. <laughs> uh, you know, is that what they're looking for here on Fuzzy Logic? We're talking renewable energy, community energy, with our guest, uh, Rebecca Colvin uh, from the ANU Climate Change Institute and Laurie McIntosh who is the Principal Executive Officer of a community energy project called SolarShare. Marcus Anderson. And Marcus, by the way, has an engineering background. So, Laurie, you know, we're talking about what happened on King Island and uh, 
how people got engaged and how they did not get engaged. What sort of things did you find enthused people? Did you, what reception did you get when you floated this idea out across the people who might who wanted to be involved? There's two uh, important groups that it's, it's important to distinguish between for us, and, and one is the group of. Um, I guess Canberra residents who were involved quite early um, and, and grew over time as interested in taking part and owning part of Solar Share. How quickly did you get that response? It just it simply grew over time. We, we I think the day we launched, we got about a hundred people, um, and that's uh, since grown to a mailing list of over a thousand. Wow! Um, it's just grown organically. We haven't pursued it in any huge kinds of publicity pushes. We've just let it grow. Um, over a couple of years. Um, the second group I wanted to uh, bring your attention to, though, is also uh, we, have a, we have a host community in the Madura Valley, and there are about I think 12 or 13 residents in the Madura Valley, so it's, it's quite a tight-knit little community, a um, little bit smaller than King Island, perhaps. Um, and and we're we're pretty honoured to be part of that community, and I think um, so. We're, we're part of a larger development. People that have, have driven the Majora Valley Parkway recently. Will so, be so can I just get you to define what you mean by host community? Well, well, our, our site is physically located in the Majora Valley. So people on on whose property are they on or near the solar farm? That's correct. Yes, okay. that's, that's right. Yeah. So there are about, like I said, twelve percent landowners in Majora Valley, which means that um, we were able to approach them as, as a group and, and say we're planning. Um, to, to shortlist uh, this site here um, and and what does that mean, what do we need to think about in terms of landscaping, what do we need to think about in terms of any reflectivity. Well, how, did you, how did you do it? Did you go and knock on their door? Did you ring them up? Did you email them? Post cold calling. Them no, no, I, uh, it, was, it was cold calling. So um, identifying um, uh, the Madura Valley Land Care Group and, and giving them a call and, and uh, I'm asking them what, what kind of process might be uh, appropriate to go through in, in terms of presenting at one of their meetings and um, understanding um, you know, the position of everybody in the valley. Oh, so you tapped into a pre-existing network? Yes, that's right, yeah. Right, okay. And what was the first thing? So was there a particular meeting, a, a day that you can recall when you, you went there and, and you, you stood at the front with, your, with a whiteboard and a PowerPoint slide? Yeah, there was a meeting like that. Um, what, what I guess I want to I guess point out, though, is that Madura Valley is, is really important to the ACT. Um, it's got this really great um, bush capital feel as an entryway for Canberra. Um, as, you, as you're coming down, you've got the truffle farm, you've got the winery, you've got various horse um, equestrian facilities, um, and there's even talk of um, I think one uh, one landlord was thinking of doing maybe a, a bed and breakfast type um, arrangement. So it's got all this potential to be a really great introduction to the feel of Canberra, and I know that's important for. Um, any kinds of development that take part in the valley. Um, so we need to be very conscious of that because um, solar panels are, they're, they're what's what you, I guess, call light industrial. Um, so we mean to make sure that they're, they're presented in a way that visually aligns with that bush capital feel for the valley and that it can actually support that vision for the valley because I think it can be a really good mainstay as an entryway into Canberra. Now, I think you're answering the question that I asked Rebecca earlier, which is what do the people, of the local people value? And I think you're, you're saying the, the sense of being an innovative, crafty type 
you know, the meat and bed and breakfast wineries, that kind of stuff. And so, do they see solar panels as fitting into that as the, you know, as a like a statement about their place in the world and uh, renewable energy and so on? Is that is that part of it? Yeah, I think I think that solar panels, and I think that hopefully that they see solar panels too. Well, I shouldn't say hopefully because we've had the conversations, and I think um, I think that's the case that that solar panels can fit in with that as a, as a kind of sustainability, ecotourism type feel um, to the valley. And so I think, I think that's supported there. So to take us back to that first engagement, mm. what happened? What sort of reception did you get? Oh, it, it was fixed. Oh, I've got to be honest here. I mean, there were some people that, that, that sort of thought, oh, actually, this, this is a really good way of, of building um, this, this field in the valley. And other, others had some concerns that we had to think about and, and meet, um, and particularly with, with visual aspects. Um, there had been some previously about aviation that people were concerned about. As many will know, that um, the valley is a, a major um, corridor into the, um, the airport. Um, so there were some concerns initially about about reflectivity and, and flight paths and things like that. Um, but it, we're, we're pretty confident to say that after doing all the reflectivity studies that the risk there is, is you know, very, very low and that you'll see in maybe other airports around the world um, they have solar panels right up into the runway. So it's, but it's a new thing for, for um, potentially Australia to sort of be considering some of these issues. So it's good that people have done it thoroughly. So, Rebecca, do you think hearing uh, Laurie's story that it's significant that he is a local approaching the local people as opposed to tell me if, if, if I got this wrong but a, outsiders coming to King Island I think that's very significant and I think it shows in the way you're considering what's important to the valley to the residents of the valley and making sure that what you're proposing fits in with that um, in terms of king island hydro tasmania has been operating in the island um, there are some local employees of the company so they weren't entirely um, completely foreign to king island but certainly in terms of the project the project originated in hobart essentially and was then taken to king island to the community um, Rebecca, uh, as engineers, we often talk in terms of appropriate technology. Uh, do you think uh, on the surface that the King Island wind farm looked to be appropriate technology from Hobart, uh, but when you're actually living on King Island, uh, perhaps it wasn't so appropriate? I think that's very possible and certainly for some people. So in King Island there were many people in the community that supported the project. They saw it as compatible so people saw it as fitting in with that clean and green image that King Island has that's so important to the cheese and the beef. There were other people though that saw it as um, this unwanted industrialisation of the island and something you were making me think of Laurie was um, we often use this term wind farm uh, but some people and certainly I don't wish to paint the King Island community as if everyone shared the same opinion because they didn't but some people felt that the term wind farm is um, is propaganda they saw it as being a wind factory that was being proposed so they were making a claim against that argument that turbines fit in with the agrarian landscape they were saying that it's not it's it's more of that industrial landscape 
Okay. Now, the TAS Hydro Corporation did a feasibility study. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened then? So the feasibility study um, happened a fair way into the consultation process. In fact, when they first started um, the process itself, they were consulting with the community on whether they should proceed to their next stage, which was the feasibility stage. So when they'd be doing this study on so whether pre- it could go ahead. Pre- so I've jumped a step. The pre-feasibility first, right? That's right, yeah. Now, what was the goal of that? Was that a technical or a social evaluation or, or both? So a bit of both. So they... Um, they commissioned studies on the impact that the development could have on the King Island brand, on what it would mean for the local economy, for local people, um, opportunities that would it would create and potentially take away. What was so interesting during this phase was that because the company said we want to do really good community engagement, they said we're not going to move to the next stage of the proposal without having community support. And so through... A series of different decisions, uh, this led to having a vote in the community. So they started at this pre-feasibility stage and then it got to the point where um, a formal vote was held within the community on whether the proposal should proceed to that next stage, the feasibility stage. But there was a key moment there, wasn't there, just prior to the vote when they said, what does the mandate mean? Yes, yes, that's right. So what is success for the vote? Well, yes, and there was an incident where the spokesman stood up at a meeting and off the cuff made a a comment. Yes, that's right. So this was a meeting where uh, there were various issues being discussed, but people from the community quite rightly uh, said to this person from the company, you're saying you'll have a vote um, to decide whether or not to go ahead, whether you have community support, but they wanted to know what was considered the benchmark for success. So did they want an election-style vote where you needed a majority of 51%? Um, Or did they want a a clear majority? Did they want 75% or 90% support to show that they've got support and also a united community in that support? Now at this meeting, the way it was described to me was that the representative said a fairly um, unscripted remark of we'd be looking for about 60%. And so that 60% figure... Uh, was seen to be more than half, but not just more than half, like more than half with a bit of comfort. Yeah, it's a B, it's a B pass mark, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> not a D. That's right. Yeah. And so then the vote happened, and yes. what was the result? Well, remembering I said 60% support, yep. uh, the vote came in at 58.7% support. And so this was problematic, uh, as I'm sure you would be seeing, uh, but because the population's fairly small in King Island, they had 878 individual votes cast. So the difference between the number of people that voted in support of the um, proposal moving to the feasibility stage and 60% was 12 individual votes. So it's a very small difference between what they got and what they wanted to get. So the total voting population was how many? I actually, I actually don't know. So it was more than the number who voted, uh, but there are... Not large. No. A lot less than 1,500 total. Well, that, wouldn't, that would include children. Of children, course. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. So then nominally they failed their own benchmark, which... 
I feel kind of feel sorry for this bloke. <laughs> you know, he's just off the cuff made. He's probably expressed what he thought intuitively would feel good to him. Mm. <laughs> but they they hadn't and they hadn't sussed this out before they started. Uh, uh, Marcus, uh, Rebecca, I was just wondering whether uh, that sixty percent was offered before or after uh, the decision was made to allow blow-ins to be part of the vote. Oh, okay, good question. So I think what you're referring to uh, was the fact that the rules of eligibility were changed ahead of the vote. So initially, because the vote was um, planned to be legitimate, uh, it was going to be run by the Australian Electoral Commission. But there were difficulties there where there were some people that were newer to the island who hadn't yet changed their electorate. And so there was pressure um, from a community consultative committee uh, and also from a group that had formed of concerned citizens saying that we feel that this um, eligibility requirement should change. It should be anyone who pays rent or rates on the island. And so I actually can't recall in what order that happened, the 60% benchmark. I think it's likely that 60% claim came after that change. Okay, here on Fuzzy Logic we're talking renewable energy and the King Island story and the Canberra story with SolarShare, our guests uh, Lawrence McIntosh and Dr Rebecca Colvin from the Climate Change Institute at the ANU and with some help from Marcus. I think we might break to some Creedence Clearwater revival and when we come back, a bit more on King Island because it is such a fascinating story fuzzy logic oh dear Marcus just made a rude comment to me when we were off air <laughs> just now he says we're showing our age playing Creedence Clear Water Revival but a good thing a thing of beauty is a joy forever as they say <laughs> at King Island they, they, where there was the vote and mm. the vote was taken. What happened then? 58.7%, I think you said. That's right, yeah. A self-imposed success mark of 60%. Mm-hmm. And, well, what happened? Well, as I'm sure you would probably expect, there were different views on the legitimacy of that outcome. Or not so much the legitimacy, but what the outcome meant. So there were people who said it's more than half, it's basically 60%. They've pretty much succeeded in showing that there's community support. Those tended to be the people who were supportive of the proposal, including Hydro Tasmania. On the other hand, there were people who said that Hydro Tasmania had categorically failed to meet their own measure. It can also understand that uh, to some extent. And this was put in the context of this idea of the social license to operate, which is um, the thought that as well as all of your regulatory licenses, you have this sort of metaphorical social license, which is showing that... A mandate. Yes, yeah, exactly. And they, well, according to the views of the, of the people, of the, of the no camp, uh, that mandate was not achieved. That's right. Yeah. Now, what did it do to the people, to the relationships amongst the King Island people? So the vote, um, in the lead-up to the vote, as well as around the time of the vote, it became quite um, quite divisive. So previously you would have people who had been vocally in opposition to the proposal and vocally in support, but there were a lot of people who weren't sure that maybe felt, I want to know more, but I can't commit to it, or I'm open to this, but I'm not sure that it's exactly right. 
Whereas coming into the vote, it meant that all of those people who had um, mixed views or were in the grey area had to commit to either yes or no in order to be casting a vote in this process. And so what it meant was that you kind of had to categorise yourself. So were you a yes person or a no person? And this meant that within the community there was pressure on people to reveal how they would be voting. Uh, campaigning happened in order to try to convince people to vote in a particular way. And so up until this point of having the vote, there'd been this general feeling that there was Hydro-Tasmania proposing um, this development. There was the Community Consultative Committee that was working through a range of um, questions. But then there was also this um, group that had formed to oppose the proposal. Mm -hmm. And so up to that point, the conflict had been primarily between the opponent group and Hydro-Tasmania. Or this had been the battle of um, who would change the focus. It did, yeah. This is starting to feel like a, a soccer match. <laughs> you know, you're a West Ham United or you're a some other team. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you wear their jersey to the match and either you're one or the other and if you're neutral then you're the other. Mm. Uh, did it get nasty? It did. So a lot of people um, had horrible experiences during this time. These were people that both supported and opposed the proposal. There were people that received um, abusive phone calls, received abuse in person, people who would say that they felt such deep despair that they didn't want to get out of bed or leave the house. Um, and this spanned over about two years. So for a small community where cohesion and getting on with your neighbours is really critical. This was a major disruption uh, to the community during that time. Now given the community on King Island, do you get a sense this was inevitable, that the community was primed already to, to flip into this sort of mode? Naively you could just say, oh the company didn't handle it as well as they should have and in hindsight you, know, you can always say we could do better. But do, do you think that the, there was a propensity of the community perhaps before any of this happened that, that this might have happened? Well, it certainly um, opened up pre-existing social cleavages. So those differences between people who were seen to be the real King Islanders versus the blow-ins. But even so, that distinction which was uh, used to say it's the blow-ins that are opposing it, they don't know what King Island's really about, and then it's the real King Islanders that are supporting it because they don't know what's best for the island, they take this place for granted. That actually masked a lot of the complexity because it certainly wasn't that you could draw a clear line between the so-called blow-ins and the so-called true island, true King Islanders and see whether someone would support or oppose it. There was much more complexity there, but yet these stereotypes were used almost to, to take away that complexity, to make it easier to discount someone's opinion if you dislike it. Somewhat, somewhat tribal, I think, is the way you, we could characterise it. Yeah, I think that's a fair. Now, how do they share the benefits? So uh, Laurie here is from SolarShare, but uh, for the King Island project, how was the money? There, there was going to be some benefits, some dollar return to the residents, how was that? So there were a few different ways. Um, initially, or in the first instance, there would be a payment to the hosts of the turbines. There'd also be a payment to the neighbours um, who were affected visually, I suppose, by the turbines. And then also payments to the community for community development. Um, but in addition to that, as well as 
developing the turbines, the company would have had to redevelop the port in King Island, which would have enhanced um, the prospects for, for shipping. So there's actually another story there, but I won't go into it. Um, but that would have had major benefits. And they also committed to putting money into redevelopment of an abattoir in King Island. Well, would some people have seen that as a disadvantage because now you've got more tourists coming in and the, the quiet lifestyle might be disrupted a little bit perhaps by an influx? Do you think that was part of their attitude? Uh, certainly in terms of the construction, there were fears about um, fly-in, fly-out workers disrupting the community during that phase. In terms of long-term prospects for tourism, I don't, certainly I don't recall that coming up. You did up. get a sense of that, yeah. Okay, so now with, with SolarShare, Laurie, the benefits are to be shared amongst the people who invested. How does that work? So our project is open to investors from the ACT and um, we like to encourage anyone that would like to, to have a role in, in that. And we, we're really focused on their... Well, not, not really, but we, part of our focus is on... Um, Allowing people who don't have a means to own their own renewable energy generator, they might not have a roof, they might rent, they might live in an apartment, they might not just simply have um, an appropriate place to put it, or for whatever reason, um, it's important for us to be able to offer them a way that they can participate in our renewable energy economy. Um, and what Rebecca was saying here too reminded me a little bit of um, uh, just, just the process, I suppose, in Denmark, where uh, some of the, the, the laws are set up in such a way that for any new um, wind turbine proposal, and many will know that, of course, that Denmark's almost covered in wind turbines, um, this, this community, though, in Denmark um, isn't, hasn't got those same concerns about um, the, the location of the turbines in their community or even their visual appearance. And, and that's often been put down to having... Um, 50% of those wind turbines owned, every single one of them within a four kilometre radius of that, um, of that development. So there's this real sense in the community that, that it's those farmers that are doing it as opposed to an outside company going in to do it. Um, and I, I'm not a social researcher, but I suspect that might have some, something to do with the difference in public perception that you see um, in Denmark versus some of the experiences in Australia. Okay, so if I wanted to invest as a Canberra resident or indeed Marcus or Re Rebecca wanted to invest it or our listener mm. in SolarShare, we, we could just chip in and, and buy ourselves. Would we get a an annual return? That, that's right. So you, you can go on our website right now if you'd like to register for that. Um, as I mentioned before, we, we did a very initial round of investment last year and our main one will be this year. Um, and that will probably occur kicking off probably about July, I'd say. Um, and so that, that will be the one that's where we expect you know, about five or 600 um, people to, to invest. And yeah, that could well open to the three of you as well as everybody out there as well if they're listening. So when does it come online? Uh, if all goes well, we'd expect to start operating late this year, early next year. Okay. Well, and... But just to caveat that, though, we, like, not everything always goes well, and there's lots of been learning experiences along the oh, way for us. Been, has it been complicated? How difficult? You said you had to bring together lots of things, so get the mandate or the social licences, Rebecca calls it, mm -hmm. the, the legal, the financial, the talking to the host owners, the landowners, and so on. 
Um, oh, it's been hugely complicated. <laughs> I think that's an understatement there, right? I just, I just um, on a checklist. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're we're um, we're also um, really lucky to be in the ACT. With ACT governments put some um, strong programs together for encouraging renewable energy, um, and that's that's what's um, you know, developed some of the other projects around the ACT. And so we need to make sure that we comply with all the government's requirements as well as the legal, financial, social, um, technical. They're all they've all got to line up, and that, yeah. And do you think there'll be a solution? version two, uh, 2.0 <laughs> we are working on on future projects they'll they'll likely be a lot smaller than this uh, so we're uh, in conversation with some of the um, owners of commercial roofs in in Canberra uh, where we could put a, a smaller rooftop solar generator that would feed uh, energy use directly in that building okay I could feel Marcus is, was trying to chip in here yes I, I, I suggest you don't put it to the vote though <laughs> <laughs> We've had a few a few votes already, actually. But part of part of what um, being a community-owned solar company is all about for us is making sure that decision making around. Um, the energy choices of our community is, uh, it's got the three Ds we like to say, it's democratised, decentralised and decarbonised. Um, and, and for a lot of the, I guess, founding work in SolarShare, uh, particularly in aspects of our constitution, uh, we went out to our prospective members and said, we're, we're thinking about um, what it means to have our constitution, the objectives that we should have and the, and the way that um, even voting should occur in this organisation. Um, what do you think? And, and for some of those aspects, we actually have put them to, to vote. Yeah. Okay, Rick, Becker, they're back to the King Island story. So there was the vote that all went a bit toxic in the community and mm. so on. Was that the death of the project? No, it wasn't. So um, we've discussed that the vote was held. Uh, the benchmark that was stated wasn't met, but there were mixed views about what the outcome actually meant. But the company decided to proceed with the feasibility study at that point. And so this is, I think, keeping in mind, it was just a feasibility study. So it wasn't actually going ahead with developing the turbines or anything. It was still working out whether it was feasible to host these turbines in King Island. But one of the reasons that that was controversial was because of the talk about getting a social license and gaining community support. There was a view from some people in the community that because they've done this vote now and then they've gone ahead um, with their feasibility study anyway. When you got to the next hurdle, which was, if it's feasible, are we going to develop it in the community? There was the view that the company would do the same thing. They'd go ahead regardless of what the community's wishes were. This actually led to some legal actions being taken against uh, Hydro Tasmania by the opposition group that formed. And now this was on the basis of um, this language around the social license, saying that the company had said, we need a social license, this is how we're going to measure it. They failed to achieve that and they proceeded anyway. That was the argument. Um, but in the meantime, there were some changes. So the renewable energy uh, targets were dis dismantled. Um, I Although went wound back, wound back, yes, yeah. and so that uh, didn't actually factor into for the decision um, for the proposal to not proceed. Um, but that certainly happened in the same time. A lot of the industry where the energy would have been exported to closed down. This was um, in Victoria. And the Australian dollar did something um, in addition to the oh, project. So there were external factors going on. Yeah, so external factors happened, which meant that the proposal during this feasibility stage was announced that it wouldn't be proceeding anyway. And so 
all of these um, social complexities around the way the community was affected and the legal actions taken by the opposition group, these factors weren't um, part of the reason as to why the proposal didn't proceed. Do you, do you think there's any prospect? Or what happened to the legal action and what was the outcome? Did it, did it get to court? No, it was settled out of court out of because of the proposal oh, okay. being cancelled. So is there a prospect? What about the future now for King Island? Well, uh, King Island, as I understand, um, tourism has been going well. They've got some world-class golf uh, courses that are there, getting tourists in for that. Um, they've been working on dealing with a problem they've had on shipping, and as I understand it, there's some talk around um, a solution to the abattoir issue. But um, since then, some of these divides have remained in the community. There are people that still feel um, that they've been hard done by by other people. And there are some relationships that have healed and some that haven't. But you mentioned at the start of the program uh, the name of the paper, which was How Wind Became a Four-Letter Word. Um, my experience certainly was that uh, this idea of Taswind and wind energy more generally to a certain extent have become taboo in King Island because the, this is almost like a trauma uh, that talking about it causes pain. It reminds people of the difficulties of those interpersonal challenges that happened at the time so nothing has changed except there was two years of major conflict in this uh, small very, community. Very messy. Now I don't know that I've asked you this question but we're running short of time so try to keep it short. Okay. Can you characterize the main points that the people opposed the farm on? So I'll try to be short. So these included uh, the visual impacts, mm -hmm. uh, how this would affect the lifestyle and the community, um, also claims about the process, so feeling that it was a David versus Goliath battle, uh, that people in the community weren't being given a real say, that the benefits sharing, that there'd be a lot of profit going to Hydro Tasmania, but um, comparatively not much going to the community. There were concerns about migratory birds and the impact it would have in the local environment, and there were concerns about um, fears about health impacts. Also, oh, the so-called wind noise, the the old infrasound, and so on. Yeah. Uh, okay. So it's it's basically it's it's finished uh, for, for the foreseeable. I think is what we're saying. That's right. As far as we can tell. Mm. Well, uh, I think you would have a lot to contribute to future projects because obviously these things are still going on all around Australia and I've been talking to uh, local farming groups here and the Wind Alliance about uh, developments out near the Cookwell Tarago region and that's been in the news lately. Oh, and Rebecca, we're going to get you a spot on the ABC on the Occam's Razor <laughs> and uh, I've now publicly put you on notice. <laughs> okay, thank you. So, uh, dear listener, keep, keep ear out for that and we'll promote that when it comes up because Rebecca is going to tell a story for our ABC listeners. <laughs> now, Thanks, uh, a lot more coming up on 2XX. And next weekend, uh, we're going to be playing an interview that I'm going to record with Professor Clive Hamilton. And he's written his latest book, which is called Defiant Earth. And quite a gloomy story about the Anthropocene, about how we're entering an entirely new geological epoch on the planet and what does that mean for humanity and how we need to adjust our thinking to what that actually means. It's quite a, a daunting 
oh my shit word <laughs> uh, Anthropocene so to, for a conservative body such as the uh, International Stratigraphic Union or whatever they call themselves the ge an august geological body for them to propose or to be even considering a new geological epoch is pretty is pretty serious mm. now, um, uh, we have a companion column in Fairfax Media and today's is from a researcher who's on the Murchison Arad in Western Australia Sammy McSweeney and he's written a story about where did the Big Bang happen in the universe quite a mind-boggling one uh, and that was a question sent to us by a reader that's that's a really interesting stuff where did it happen and when when did it happen then we have one on carbon farming uh, so what does it mean to capture carbon in the soil and in trees and I was out at a property yesterday looking at how rivers capture carbon and I've got another column which will be how do you tell a nuclear blast from a regular earthquake using seismic indicators and I have a professor who's writing us that column and of course it's all very topical going on up there in uh, North Korea at the moment it's like letting off bombs and how do we know they're actually doing it and that's it for us from Fuzzy Logic. Now we've been talking to uh, Dr. Rebecca Colvin about the story on King Island and the more resources available. Your article is available online, Rebecca. That's right, yes, uh, in the Energy Policy Journal or if anyone looks me up, I can email a copy through. It's probably easier. And Lawrence McIntosh from SolarShare Canberra, there you have a website if people right. want to learn more about you. And if anyone also would like to leave us feedback on, on any aspect of our development, that's feedback at solarshare.com.au, but our website is um, solarshare.com.au and they e can go online there. E easy, easy to find. And you have an interesting article in the conversation uh, about how you connect uh, uh, renewable energy to the grid. Some technical stuff, which I wanted to talk about, but a bit difficult here. That's uh, right. That's my other hat on at the Institute for Sustainable Future. Just but that must be left for another time, I think. <laughs> yeah, one day I'd like you to explain. Maybe we can get you to do a column for the uh, paper on us. Uh, what does uh, synchronous energy mean? Dispatchable, baseload, all of those kinds of technical Lots things. of juicy technical stuff in there. Uh, <laughs> well, we put it into simple terms, and it doesn't have to be that hard. And thank you, Marcus. Uh, My pleasure, Rod. Time to go. Catch you later.